pop. It was one of Bennett's favorite memories, his honeymoon. He and his wife, Melanie, 23 years old, fit and attractive, took a cruise, the first and only cruise of Bennett's life. Fifteen days, ocean to ocean, from Los Angeles to Miami. The ship would have been enough for him. They lounged by the pool, drank mixed drinks in the hot tub, made love in their cabin. Then there was the sport fishing in Cabo San Lucas, the open-air markets of Puerto Vallarta, the beaches of Acapulco, the marvel of the Panama Canal. To say it was an enchanting way to start their life together would be an understatement. Melanie was the love of his life. He'd never known a more intelligent woman. That she was funny and beautiful didn't hurt either. What did hurt was the fact that she was dead now five years. Breast cancer. It hollowed her out, broke her down, took her from him. A poster had reminded him of their honeymoon, a simple scene of a couple riding a horse on a beach at sunset. He could smell the sunscreen, taste the coconut-flavored rum, hear the pop of the champagne bo- Can you roll up your sleeve, Mr. Gold? Bennett popped out of his memory with a dazed, huh? Oh, yeah, the doctor's office. Mary Washington Hospital. His hip. A nurse smiled at him. Your arm? I'd like to take your blood. Oh, right. He rolled up his sleeve and turned his head. It was strange, he knew, for a man who served two tours in Afghanistan and another 30 years in the force to be squeamish around blood, but he was. Just a pinch here. Bennett took a deep breath and closed his eyes, tried not to think about the needle. All done, the nurse said. The door opened and Dr. Wang bustled into the room. She used a tablet to bring the x-rays of his hip up on the monitor hanging on the wall. Well, Bennett, I'm afraid we have some bad news. I figured as much. I put two x-rays up here. This one is a normal hip, this one is yours. And as you can see right here, the normal space between the joints is, Bennett zoned out. He knew where this was going. He was 49 and he needed a hip replacement. Hip replacement? At 70 maybe, but 49? How could this be? He already knew the answer. First, it was in his family history. His father, his grandfather, even his childhood dog, Ringo. That should have been enough to make him careful. But like anyone else his age, when the pain started two years before, the popping joints, the aching bones, first after he exercised, then while he exercised, then waking him up in the middle of the night, then pretty much every waking moment of the day, he ignored it. He wasn't an old man. He was still virile. He played rec league flag football, for Christ's sakes. Well, not anymore, not since last year. The day he quit playing, he should have gone right to the doctor. If Melanie was still alive, she would have made him go well before that. But she wasn't alive. And instead of going to the doctor, he started self-medicating, first with booze, then with pills. And now here he was. Can't rule out the probability of a second replacement down the line. Bennett gradually came around to what Dr. Wang had just said. Excuse me? She relaxed a little bit, a soft expression crossing her face. She opened her mouth to try and calm him down when something caught her attention at the set of double windows that overlooked the parking lot. What is that? She said, and she stepped over to it. Oh my God. The room was filled with a blinding white light. 
Dr. Wang held her hands up and grimaced, as if doing so would somehow block it. The light consumed her, swallowed her up, and then all of the oxygen was sucked out of the air. Bennett's ears felt like they were filled with putty. The pressure in his head was unbearable, and then it released with a pop, and the window exploded, showering the room with shards of brick and wood and glass. Bennett had been sitting on the examination table, which was against the wall and partially blocked from the windows by a storage unit. It saved his life. Though his head was pounding and his jeans were shredded at the ankles, he was otherwise okay. A howling wind swirled outside, as if the blast had been created by an army of banshees. Dr. Wang was on her back near the door. Straddling her was a clown. Bennett blinked hard. Yes, a clown. A clown had blasted through the windows, and it was eating Dr. Wang's neck. Her eyes fixed on his, her mouth working, blood trickling out of one corner. All too late, Bennett remembered his gun. He was a detective, after all. His 9mm was in its holster on his hip. He unsnapped the strap, took it out, and yelled, Hey! The clown whipped around, his face covered in blood. Other than that, it looked like a regular old clown. Bright white makeup, red rubber nose, orange curly wig. Its jumper was dotted in primary colors, and it wore stupid green oversized shoes but its teeth. He'd never seen so many in a human mouth before. And so sharp. Maybe that's what made him pause. Maybe it was the explosion still going off outside. Maybe it was the screams, the sirens, the crunching cars. Whatever the case, it gave the clown enough time to leap for him. Bennett pulled the trigger, aiming for the thing's face. He had no idea how many times he hit it, only that at one point, its head exploded with a pop, and his body fell flat at his feet. He grimaced as he stepped over it, holstering his gun. Dr. Wang! She was gurgling, blood pouring out of the wound on her neck. Bennett was about to struggle to his knees when she convulsed three times and went still. Damn, he muttered. Something caught his attention from the direction of the window, and he limped over, careful not to get too close. Dr. Wang's examination room was on the top floor of the hospital, which itself was located on a hill to the north of the city. He could see all the way downtown from that vantage and what he saw terrified him. It was a brain, a huge brain, the mother of all brains, pink and fleshy and pulsating and sitting square in the middle of the city. Princess Anne Street, it looked like. It had taken out Foodie and half the block around it, burrowing into the ground like a meteor. As he watched, the top of the brain dappled, seemed to suck into itself, and then it expelled three black pods. Pop, pop, pop! They shot out into the sky in three different directions, one headed for the college, another for Mayfield, and the third landed right in the hospital parking lot below, destroying whatever cars or trees or people happened to be in its path. It cracked open, black goo oozing, and six clowns jumped out, cackling and screaming and honking antique bicycle horns. A man ran by and one of the clowns took him down and attacked his neck. Jesus, Bennett said. He turned around and there stood Dr. Wang. Only, she wasn't Dr. Wang anymore. She was a clown version of her old self. Bright white makeup, orange wig, red nose. She screamed and ran for him, revealing rows of sharp teeth. And Bennett, who didn't have time to draw his gun, did the only thing he could think to do. He stepped aside and stuck out his foot. The Dr. Wang clown, whose feet were now large and green and silly looking, tripped and tumbled out the window. He leaned over the edge to watch as it fell four stories and landed on an ambulance, crushing the roof. Clowns crashed through the windshields of the cars trying to escape, ran down old ladies on walkers, tackled orderlies, security guards, ambulance drivers, women on crutches. 
and whoever they attacked, whoever's throats they tore out, or eyes they gouged, or stomachs they dismembered, turned into clowns too. Zombie clowns. And they were fast. Bennett drew his gun and checked the clip. He only had nine bullets left. Maybe less. He jammed it back in and snapped up his cane. Judging from the chaos he heard on the other side of the door, he'd need all nine and more if he was going to make it out alive. He closed his eyes, took a deep breath. Come on, Bennett. On the count of three. One, two, three. The next ten minutes were a riot of terror. Bennett lurched out of the examination room, squinting in the smoke and flickering hallway lights. Doctors, patients, nurses, orderlies created an almost impenetrable stream. He stepped into a break and was carried swiftly forward, faster and faster, too fast for him to be able to keep up for long. The rooms he passed were no more than empty holes. He saw a clown crash through a window and land on a doctor. He saw a clown tearing out the stomach of an old man. The stream turned into a flood, and someone kicked his cane out from underneath him. His leg buckled and he fell flat on his face. Feet stepped on his head, his neck, kicked him in the ribs. He tried to push himself up off the ground, but every time he tried, he was just trampled back down again. A boot to the head made his vision go dark, and then he was on his feet. A woman in a hospital gown stood in front of him yelling, Let's go! Another explosion rocked the building, screams from all around. Bennett turned to see nothing but open space behind him and a jagged frame of rebar and lumber, sparking wires hanging like vines. The woman yanked on his arm and dragged him away. He tried to follow the crowd to the nearest exit, but she yelled, No! and jerked him down a different hallway. They passed a child crouched on the floor, covering her ears. Bennett scooped her up, crying out against the pain in his hip. They reached an intersection, and the woman turned to say something to him when another explosion hit, and the space where she was disappeared. Bennett turned and staggered away. He hit hallways at random, left and right, right and left, looking for an exit, finally finding one at the end of a long passage. He hobbled forward, holding the weeping girl against his chest. A security guard backed into view at the intersection, firing his weapon. Two clowns jumped on him and took him down. Bennett paused, and when they didn't reappear, he pushed on. All he could see as he backed into the door were smears of blood on the tiles. Another guard was just inside the door. Get out of here! Go! Go! Bennett hopped down as best he could, trying to avoid using his right leg. He made it down to the third floor. Subhuman cries, gunfire from above. The stairs in the second landing had been blown away. He backed into the door leading to the second floor, where a man yelled, Tina! and ripped the little girl out of his arms. A crazed woman, mouth red with blood, hair frizzed out in an orange wig, jumped for him, and he stopped short, and she flew by and landed on a man wielding a scalpel. She bit his face. The man dropped the blade. Bennett scooped it up and stabbed her in the neck but it did nothing but spurt blood, so he grabbed the fire extinguisher off the wall and smashed her in the back of the skull. She hit the ground, and he bashed her head again and again until it exploded with a pop. The man she attacked was convulsing. His face went bright white, his nose turned into a red circle, and he sat straight up and lunged for Bennett's bad leg. Bennett fell on his rear, and it pulled itself onto him, gnashing its teeth. He hit it in the forehead with the fire extinguisher, but it kept coming. He hit it again, but it swatted the extinguisher away like it was nothing. It pulled itself up to his face, and Bennett grabbed it by the shoulder, straining, straining to push it off of him. He held his chin in his hand like a tee, like he was setting up a golf ball. And then, someone actually hit the back of its head like it was a golf ball. The monster grunted and reeled. Hold it higher! Bennett pressed up. Another hit. Half the thing's head disappeared. One more! The final blow took the rest of the skull off, and the beast collapsed to one side, where its face hit the floor. And when it did, its head exploded with a pop. Bennett looked up to see who had helped him. It was another clown. A golf clown. It twirled its club, a sand wedge, and rested it on its shoulder. Don't worry, brother, it said. 
Name's Zeke. I'm one of the good ones. Those two tours in Afghanistan taught Bennett this about fear. It was not an elective. Not in war. He had suffered mortar attacks, IEDs, and all-out firefights. And those were frightening enough. But he also reconned narrow alleys where the heads of the enemy, or was it just children, popped up over rooftop ledges to throw rocks or water or grenades. He led patrols down open streets where every movement could be a sniper or a suicide bomber or a child playing with a ball. He learned early on that bombs and explosions and gunfire were scary, but silence was worse. Silence slithered and sneaked, played with his senses. He'd seen men go mad with silence. When he got back from his second tour, he found his anxiety ramped up not during the action movies he and Melanie went to, or even when a fire truck blared its horn as it sped past their rental on Stafford Avenue. But when he was alone on a quiet Sunday, sitting out in the screened-in back deck, reading a book, sipping coffee, a cool breeze rushing through the fall leaves. It welled up in him like a burst pipe, and suddenly he knew that someone was watching him through a scope, the reticle resting on his forehead, or that someone else was going to sprint around the corner screaming, Allahu Akbar, or that a child holding a cell phone was standing under his deck, thumb about to depress the call button. That kind of fear, the fear of imminent death, was exactly what he felt sitting on the roof of the Route 1 Taco Bell. Because it was quiet, nearly completely quiet. No sirens, no fighter jets, no helicopters, no gunfire, not even a scream. Just the hollow emptiness of the wind, the stillness of death. Zeke sat next to him, swinging his legs over the edge and eating a bean burrito. An entire feast sat next to him. Chalupas, enchiladas, nachos, churros, tacos, taco salads. You hungry? Not really. Listen, man, you need fuel. After a trauma like that, your body is drained. That's not food. It's salt and carbs. Beans aren't bad for you. Everything else in there is. Come on, man. Just one taco. Why do you care so much? Because I want to live. And if I'm going to live, I need help. You too. On the horizon, the mother brain belched out three more pods. Pop, pop, pop. What do you think that is, anyway? Zeke asked. The pods hold the clowns. Yeah, but why? It's the end of the world. Nothing has to make sense. Zeke put his burrito on his lap and thought. A couple of stray clowns wandering around below noticed them sitting on the roof and ran for the building. Zeke's an interesting name. What? You were expecting Deshaun or Malik? Bennett shrugged. Zeke's an interesting name for anybody. All right. But what's your name? Deshaun, Bennett said. No, Malik. They looked at each other, wondering if they should laugh or fight. They chose the former. It's Bennett, Bennett said. He held out his hand, and they shook. And we're not going to just survive. We're going to kill that thing. The mother brain? How? Help me up. Zeke stood and offered his hand. Bennett swallowed a groan as he got to his feet. He pointed east toward the river. You see that? 
See what? At the gas station. A tanker was parked in the Valero lot, its doors open. Even from that distance, they could see the blood smears. A gas tanker? Yep. We're going to run it into the mother brain. Into the mother brain? We'll jump out before it hits. How do you know it's even full? I don't. But I want to live too. And the only way that's going to happen is if we kill the mother brain. And you know this for sure. No. But it's better than waiting to die on the top of a Taco Bell. A few more zombie clowns erupted out of the woods on the other side of the road, chasing a man in his boxers and wearing a shirt with the words, Gas, Grass, or Ass, Nobody Rides for Free, written on it. He fired a handgun wildly. None of the clowns were hit, but one of the windows of the Taco Bell shattered. The clowns jumped on him. Look, man, Zeke said, that's the kind of thing that only happens in movies. Maybe. But I've seen a tanker explode before. It'll do the job. When? I'm a cop. Twenty years. I also did two tours in Afghanistan. Oh, so you've seen all kinds of things blow up. In Afghanistan, yeah. But as a cop, just a gas tanker. Once. Huh. Zeke looked across the lot at the tanker. He looked back at Bennett. Can you make that run with your bad hip? Nope. But you can. Bullshit. More zombie clowns drawn by the gunfire ran down Route 1. Zeke, my hip is a jigsaw puzzle right now. Even if the tanker was an automatic, I couldn't drive it. You want me to drive a gas tanker into a mother brain and hope it blows up? I said we'll jump. How do you know I can even drive stick? Can you? Yeah. The mother brain pulsed again. Pop, pop, pop. The pods shot into the sky, north this time. Zeke marveled at them. He pondered the ocean of zombie clowns that had gathered beneath them. He finished his burrito, balled up the wrapper, and threw it at them. What do you say, Zeke? Bennett asked. Scenes from Buddy Cops 2, The Buddy Coppening, starring Old Man and Golf Clown. Scene 1. Titles exist for a reason. A middle-aged detective jumps down off the roof of a Taco Bell onto the hood of a gas tanker. He cries out in pain, holding his hip. This is Old Man. Zombie clowns surround the tanker. Some of them have been crushed against the building. Many more are still alive and active. They reach for Old Man. Sitting in the driver's seat of the cab is a man in clown makeup. He is wearing a Scottish golf outfit. His Scottish golf outfit is covered in blood. This is Golf Clown. Golf Clown. Get in, man! Get in! Old man grimacing as he stands. How? Golf Clown scoots across the cab and cranks the window down. Hurry up, man! Old man manages to climb onto the roof of the cab, scoots around on his belly, and, with quite a bit of pain, swings his legs in and lands safely on the passenger seat. Old man grabbing Golf Clown's arm. Did they bite you? We gotta get out of here! I saw them take you down. Show me your arm. Golf Clown shows him his arm. And everything else. No way, old man! Show me! It's been over ten minutes. If I got bit, I'd have changed by now. Old man holds a gun to Golf Clown's head. Golf Clown. Their noses! What? I said their noses. What are you talking about? If you put the gun down, I'll explain. Moments before. Zeke ran track in college, but college was over 20 years before the end of the world. But form and muscle memory die hard, and from the beginning of his sprint from behind the cleaners to the tanker in the Valero lot, he was able to widen the distance between him and the pack twofold. But 20 years is 20 years, and those years, filled with parenthood and lack of sleep and poor eating and sodas and alcohol, not to mention a complete absence of dedicated athletic training, catches up with him almost immediately. And with only a fifth of a mile left to go, his lungs feel like they're going to burst, and his legs feel like rubber. Behind him rages a pack of clowns. 
zombie clowns. He'd hoped that maybe his outfit would have tricked them, but apparently they could tell the difference. Being chased by a pack of anything is terrifying enough. Wolves, bears, spiders, maybe not kittens, or puppies, or meerkats, or bunnies, or babies, or guppies, or guidance counselors, or kittens. But zombie clowns? Yes. Terrifying. The pure variety of clown in the pack behind him is impressive, if unnecessarily thorough. Whiteface, Auguste, Auguste Light, Tramp, Rodeo, Ice Skating, those are the least effective, on land at least. Magic, Juggling, Mimes, the worst. Cop, Baseball, Doctor, Nurse, Boxer, Singing and Dancing. Astronaut, Admiral, President, Dictator, Rodeo, Barrel and Bullfighter, Mudhead, Shriner, Grimaldi, Harlequin, Bozo, Dodo, Literary, Drunk, Methhead. If there were such a thing as clown watchers in the way there are bird watchers nearby, they might have collectively and simultaneously orgasmed. But no matter the variety, their feet, rather than feet, are large, red, rubber appendages. It is just such an appendage that trips Zeke as he's about to turn on his final burst of speed, sending him flying face-first onto the road. Before he can do more than roll over on his back, they are upon him. Their teeth are brown and sharp and plentiful, their claws black and mossy and also plentiful. Dozens of mouths lower for the feeding, those stupid red bulbous noses shining on their ugly pale faces, and Zeke, in a moment of levity, cannot help himself. He means only to rip the nose off the closest one, but in doing so, he squishes it in his hand and... POP! The thing's head explodes in a gush of blood. The other clowns pause, suddenly uncertain. They share awkward looks. Zeke wastes no time. He strikes out with both hands, grabbing noses and squeezing. POP! POP! One lurches for his belly. He grabs its nose. POP! Two more go for his legs. He kicks them in the face. POP! POP! When it's over... Twelve headless clowns have collapsed on him. The thirteenth has stood up, horrified at the slaughter of his fellows at the hands of the supposedly weaker prey, and it turns to run away when, throwing a paranoid glance over its shoulder, it trips over its own gigantic feet and smashes face first onto the ground. Pop! Old man. Seriously? Golf clown. Straight up, man. Old man looks out the window. Zombie clowns have begun to encircle the cab. I want to try it. He looks at Golf Clown. You in? Hell no! Old Man throws the door open directly into the face of an oncoming Auguste Light, hitting it in the nose. Pop! He carefully lowers himself down. A rodeo clown lurches for him from the right. He grabs his nose and squeezes. Pop! A harlequin comes from the left. Old Man spins and his hip gives out. The harlequin trips over his good leg and falls to its knees. Old Man grabs it by the nose. Pop! One minute later. Old Man struggles back into the cab. He is covered in gore. That was fun. Horrifying, but fun. Whatever you say, man. Scene 2. Shooting the Gauntlet The tanker hops the curb onto Route 1, squashing a white face and a juggler. Over a dozen jump onto the back as it hits the median and heads north for Princess Anne. The tanker muscles through cars stalled in the middle of the road. Old man. Careful! How else am I supposed to do this? The tanker careens right onto Princess Anne shaking a few zombie clowns off like bugs. They pass Captain D's. A zombie clown smashes the passenger side window open with its fist. It is fat and wearing a bloody tuxedo. It breaks out into an aria. Old man, we got an opera clown! He grabs his nose. Pop! Another clown smashes into the windshield from above. It is wearing a beret and a neckerchief, a black and white striped shirt, and black tights. Mime! 
The mime mimics drawing a large knife from an imaginary sheath and acts as if it's about to stab him. Golf clown squeezes its nose. Pop! A shirtless clown wearing a full white beard fires a man liquor into the passenger side window. The driver's side window explodes in a hail of glass. Hemingway clown! Hemingway clown. The tanker crashed down Princess Anne Street. Its sides were scraped, its wheels humming with smoke, and its headlights alive with hatred and power. The tanker did not know fear. The tanker did not know pain. It knew only piston and fury. It would not be stopped. Old man. Ugh. He grabs its nose. Pop! The mother brain looms closer, its fleshy folds glistening in the sun. The top dimples, its muscles contract, and then, in a squirt of fluid and gas, it belches more pods into the sky. They pass Carl's. They pass Jack Brown's. They pass Red Dragon. The tanker is now carpeted in zombie clowns. Golf clown veers left, scraping several off on happy endings. He smiles a crooked smile and jerks it back to the right. But the tanker is unbalanced. It leans heavily as they go up the hill past Smith's cottage. It crashes into the porch of the Kenmore Inn, bounces back and screeches across the intersection, smashing into the iron fence of Fredericksburg Baptist. Old man and golf clown. Ah! The mother brain pulses one block away. Zombie clowns swarm the intersection at William Street. A hipster zombie clown looks down at its phone while smoking a closed cigarette outside Hyperion. Hipster clown. This is such a ripoff. Hashtag every zombie movie ever. A horrible stench fills the cabin. They are 50 feet away. A wave of zombie clowns washes over the tanker. The cab uncouples from the payload. The payload strikes St. George's Episcopal and explodes in a ball of fire. The mother brain shrieks, its flesh browning. The cab, sliding onto its side, crashes into the meat and disappears into its pulsing pink folds. Here are the three worst memories of Bennett's childhood. 1. When he was eight years old, he suffered a series of panic attacks. They always occurred at night, and because of this, he and his parents assumed they were night terrors. He would awake from a deep slumber, or half-wake, and run screaming through the house, flipping on lights, turning on appliances, trampling across furniture, certain that something was chasing him, about to catch him, that imminent death was upon him. For two weeks this went on, and rather than abate, they grew in intensity. He began to hallucinate. Faces breathed out of the walls. 2. When he was 10, he and his friends made a ramp out of bricks and boards and set it up in the middle of the street to use as a bike jump. Each successful jump, successful being defined as not crashing, 
compounded his bravado. With each pass, they pedaled harder. With each pass, they shot higher and farther. Bennett hit his last jump with the speed, he felt, of a Valkyrie. The ER doctor said he'd never used so many staples on a single skull that wasn't the result of a TBI. 3. When he was 12, his two best friends, brothers, born 12 months apart, barricaded him in a room in their basement. There were no lights, no windows. The room was empty, and, in the dark, it felt cavernous. Bennett yelled at them to let him out, that it wasn't funny, but they only laughed. Then he heard that laughter recede as they retreated up the stairs. Then he heard the front door open and close. Then he didn't hear anything at all. One hour later, their mother happened to come down into the basement and saw the couches, the chairs, and the shelves stacked up against the door. She heard his whimpering. These memories and many more swirled around in Bennett's mind on an endless feedback loop. He screamed and ran, chased by invisible terrors. He felt the smack of the pavement on the back of his head. He wept, blind and senseless, in a vast open void. It reduced him to nothing but the sum total of a lifetime of fear and bitterness. After what seemed to be an eternity, a voice shattered the trauma. It was pure and dreadful, beautiful and foul. Hello, my pets. Bennett wanted to scream. The voice infiltrated every aspect of his consciousness. It was there at the moment he became aware. It was there in his childhood. It was there when he fell in love. It was there for the birth of his children. It knew him. Then it became him. Through clenched teeth, he managed to say, What are you? And the voice replied, What is the moon to the ocean? What is the sun to the earth? What is the wind to the lake? I am mother. What do you want? Why are you doing this? Shh. Shh. Hush, my friends. I'm not your anything. But you can be. I will soothe your pain. I will sing to you. Feed you. Nourish you. You will be mine. You will live in paradise. See? Bennett's mind filled with images. The best moments of his life. The joy and elation distilled and flushed into his veins. They hit his belly, his bowels. It was like mainlining bliss. A scene opened up before him. A valley teeming with life. Antelope ran in packs across grassy plains. Streams sparkled in the sunlight. Sheep grazed on hillsides. Buffalo roamed. A lake shone in the distance. And wandering throughout the valley was everyone he'd ever known and loved. His grandparents, his beloved Uncle Henry, his sister, his childhood friends, his high school classmates, girlfriends, lovers, college roommates. Some lounged by the stream or swam in the lake. Some stood around the barbecue eating burgers. Some played volleyball in the grass or stretched as a woman in leotards led them through a yoga class. Bennett! They cried. They turned and waved at him. Bennett! Bennett's here! Then his wife was in front of him. Melanie, lovely as ever. Her long brown hair, her blue eyes. His heart. Oh, his heart. We love you, Bennett, she said. She reached for his hands, held them in her own. I love you. I love you, too. I miss you. I'm here, my love. Now. I, I don't know. Shh. Don't think. Look. Look at us. We're all here for you. This can be yours. Forever. It can? All you have to do is let go. Let it all go. But how? Surrender. 
surrender to me. He wanted to. He wanted to give up. It would be easier. The sun was so warm, the water so inviting. He could live here for eternity, playing with his friends, making love to his wife, sleeping under the perfect dome of the universe. And his hip, his hip no longer hurt. Astonished, he lifted his leg up and down, up and down. He laughed out loud. Melanie laughed with him. It doesn't hurt, he said. No, and it never will. You will never feel anything bad again. She smiled, radiant, inviting, filled with the promise of love and sex, and he basked in it, taking in the lips he thought he'd never kiss again, the hair he'd never feel again, the nose he'd never... Wait a minute. Bennett frowned. Her nose? It looked... Strange. Strangely shaped. Melanie had a cute little turned-up nose, but now it was oddly rounded, just at the tip. It hadn't been like that a few seconds before. The sky rippled and turned into static, like a bad signal on an old television. His friends froze in place, juddered, and Melanie's nose, it... What? Her left nostril popped out, like, really popped out, and now that whole side of her nose was round and... And it did it again, her right nostril this time. Now her nose was perfectly round. Her smile turned into a leer, and she stood there staring at him like he was prey. Your nose, he said. Yes, my love? Are you sick? No, of course not. But, but what? It's not skin-colored, it's... Oh. My. God. Oh, my God. It was red. Her nose was red. Melanie wasn't Melanie. She was one of those things. She said. It was not her voice. It was the voice of the mother brain. A feral cocktail of fear and revulsion, sadness and confusion, surprise and rage filled his belly and made him sick. Because in that moment, he knew exactly what he had to do. Faster than he thought was capable, Bennett reached out, grabbed his wife's increasingly bulbous nose, and squeezed. Zeke bounced into Bennett's hospital room two months later. He had, wisely, chosen not to wear his clown outfit. Detective Gold! How's that new hip? Bennett was sitting up in bed, reading a novel one of the orderlies had given him, Under the Skin by Michael Faber. He put it down on his lap, leaving it open to hold his place. Hurts less and less every day. Stand up yet? Got rid of my bedpan yesterday. How'd you get my room number? Though the mother brain had been destroyed, and all of the zombie clowns with it, there were people in the world who, unlike Bennett, had succumbed to the mother brain's lies. They did not take kindly to the man who facilitated her end. Bennett found that he had to take precautions similar to celebrities and mob informants in order to stay safe. Man, I've been working this place for years. I got connections. I see you're not clowning for a living anymore. Uh-uh, not for me. Not anymore. Not for anybody anymore. Besides, thanks to what we did, I've got some better offers. Oh, really? Got myself a book deal. I didn't know you knew how to read. Ha-ha, detective. I'm serious. Six figures and a movie option. I'm going to meet Beyonce. What about you, man? How's it feel? How does what feel, my hip? No, you're the hero of Fredericksburg. Bennett waved it off. He'd read the papers. He turned down every request for an interview, had no interest in playing the role. Still, the story of what he did got out. It's all over the internet. Bennett Gold saved the world. Oh. Oh? 
That's it? You realize they're going to give you anything you want, right? How do you think I got this hip? No, I mean more than that. You're never going to have to worry about anything again. Any house you want, any car, any TV. It's awesome, isn't it? Bennett thought about the valley. He saw his friends laughing and playing in the grass. He saw the perfect blue sky. He saw his wife's beautiful face. All gone. All gone. Yeah, he said. Awesome. Hello there, Mad Tailors. This is James Knoll, and it is November 5th, 2019, as I record this in my little tiny studio in Fredericksburg, Virginia. My goal when I started this podcast one year ago was to release one episode a week throughout 2019, and I almost reached it. I'm about two episodes shy of 54. However, since I did release a bonus episode at one point, I can't remember when, I think it was in the spring, I'm really just one shy. The bad news is that I'm going to take a break from releasing new episodes for this podcast for a while while I write and produce more material. I am a one-man show here, and I need more time. That's it. But I will be coming back uh, sometime in 2020. The good news, however, is that in December, I am going to start working on Blood and Gold, which is the sequel to The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake. If you don't know what that's all about, The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake is the first book in the trilogy starring the main character from the two Bonesaw stories I posted in October and November. You know, the one with the guy who talks like this. The plot has been arced for Blood and Gold, and I will be releasing that story as a serial. Those will be released in ebook and paperback on my website and in any or at any digital retailer, including Amazon, of course, but also 24 Symbols, Apple, Baker & Taylor, Barnes & Noble, Biblioteca, Hoopla, Kobo, Overdrive, Playster, Scribbit, and Tolino. All of my books are there if you're interested. And probably this summer is when I'm going to have the spring or summer, let's say spring break in March, definitely at the end of May, I will start producing more audio content. I'm either going to release the serial versions of Blood and Gold, or I'm going to backtrack and do The Rabbit, The Jaguar, and The Snake. uh, Jaguar and The Snake. Either way, I will be releasing more content. If you want to find out more about The Rabbit, The Jaguar, and The Snake, just visit my website at jamesnoll.net forward slash R-J-S. So it's J-A-M-E-S-N-O-L-L dot net forward slash R-J-S. And if you want to keep up with everything I'm doing, as well as get a free digital copy of my first book, A Knife in the Back, you can sign up for my email list at jamesknoll.net forward slash free, F-R-E-E. And finally, you can still support the podcast in a variety of ways. My Patreon, my Patreon is still running at patreon.com forward slash madtales. You can buy my books and my audiobooks either on my site, jamesknoll.net, or through Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, all those different sites I listed before. Um, I guess for Amazon, it's on Audible. They're always less expensive on my website, though. And I also offer signed paperback copies, something that you can't get through retailers, as well as my customized short story service, which is available only on my website. Even more exciting, if you would like to own every audiobook I've ever produced to date, 
I have just released the Lucky 13 Everything Bundle. That includes two novels, three novellas, and 22 short stories. And you can buy Lucky 13 through your normal audiobook retailer for $34.99. However, because you're a fan of the podcast, I'm offering it to you for only $9.99 through my website from now until December 27th. So all you have to do is go to my website, jamesnoll.net forward slash lucky13. That's L-U-C-K-Y, the numerals 1-3, so lucky 1-3. Uh, and it will be available from now, right now, when you're listening to this podcast, until there goes a truck outside my door, uh, until December 27th, like I said, 2019, after which the price goes back up to $34.99. So that's over 30 hours of audiobook for about 71% off. Special for you, my Mad Tales fans. My website is safe and encrypted, and I use PayPal th- uh, for my pay window so you can buy with confidence. So once again, I just want to thank you for hanging in there. For those of you who have been downloading the podcast religiously every time it comes out all over the world, I've got listeners on every continent right now, and I truly appreciate you tuning in and listening to what I've got. That's it. Have a wonderful end of 2019. I'll see you soon.